Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Welcome to Women on the Line, Community Radio's national women's current affairs program produced in the studios of 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Marie Nord. On today's Women on the Line, we hear an exciting and important talk about African feminism organised by Radical Women Australia. The talk was entitled Feminism in Africa from its ancient roots to now and was delivered by Nita Okoko, who is a Kenyan feminist international student at Melbourne University and Radical Women member. Nita speaks on the importance of understanding that Africa and African women are vast, varied and nuanced. She also highlights the importance of considering the humanity of African women and the context by which they experience both patriarchy and feminism. The feature song for this week's Women on the Line is Soul is Heavy by Neka, who's a Nigerian soul and hip-hop singer and songwriter. I am African. I was born and bred in Africa. I've been here for a year and a half. Um, I come from a family of okay, two parents, um, and my my mom. My mom's obviously got four children, right? And uh, I've got a, I've got a sister who is an engineer. I've got a brother as well, but let's not mention him. I've got a sister who's an engineer. <laughs> I got a sister who's an engineer. Um, I trained as a dentist. Uh, this is all in, in Africa, and I'm currently here doing my master's degree. And I have a sister training to be an accountant. Um, and so. I've been, except for, for the occasional travel for a week or two, I have sort of been born and bred in Africa, and this, I think, is often unusual. You know, I mean, people think it's unusual, but again, this is, you know, the danger of a single story, and I think a lot of Africans here will, will um, identify with that. You know, uh, there is a lot going on, um, especially women's rights have progressed, and I think I've, I've been, um, I've certainly been, a, I guess, a recipient of, of that progress put in place by the women before me. Right, okay. So, um, so what I'm going to do, I'm just going to uh, speak about, um, you know, just some history, um, and then speak about uh, the gains that women have made in countries throughout Africa, and just speak about, I guess, the current struggles of feminism and where we are right now. Right, okay. So, um, Radical Women is a socialist feminist organization, and I, I don't know if you're familiar with, with that, um, but we, we ascribe to sort of Marxism feminism because we feel that it's the, the best explanation of why we are where we are now. And um, this has been sort of documented. There's, the theory is in our manifesto, but I think any historian will be familiar with, um, with, you know, with how this came along until the present day. So um, I'm just going to paint a picture to, to show, you know, somebody mentioned that um, African women are sort of seen as second-class citizens, you know? And um, the reason I give this history is to make it clear that it wasn't always that way, you know? Uh, whatever struggles that African women, are, you know, or whatever the uh, situation that a lot of us find ourselves in as African women is not something that was always the case. Um, so I'm just going to speak about uh, matriarchal societies. So um, way back when, sort of pre 
pre-modern times, um, a lot of African communities were matriarchal in, composi in composition. So when you, when you think of a matriarchy, it's, it's not what people think it is. It's not that women, it wasn't patriarchy in reverse. Matriarchal systems were actually more than anything egalitarian systems where men and women had um, equal roles, were equally respected, um, and their roles in society, respected for their roles and seen as complementary to each other and to the survival of, um, yeah, I guess, the species and the community. And um, so one thing about patriarchy is that there was, unlike matriarchy as opposed to to patriarchy is that there was no hierarchy, um, so no hierarchy, no class, and no domination of one gender by the other. So by definition, it was more egalitarian, more equal. Um, so there's been there's evidence um, of matriarchies in what in countries that are now Angola, Mali, Ghana, Egypt, Ethiopia, and Rwanda, just to name a few. Um, in terms of yeah, of course, you know, documentation has been different as time went by, but um, Egyptians do have some of the the more um, you know, I guess, uh, you know, familiar to us, the kind of documentation that's familiar to us in, in this day and age. And, um, and I'm just gonna give an example. So for instance, um, in e Egypt and Kush, um, the, the women were very important. Uh, children took their surname from the mother and um, mothers were in control of the household um, and, and the field. So there, there, was, uh, there was a king, but the queen mother was also part of the ruling class. And, um, the king would be succeeded in a matrilineal, matrilineal line by his, sister's, by his sister's son, as opposed to by his own children. And this made sense because, um, you know, I suppose at the time you, you could be sure going through a matrilineal line that, that the children belong to the family, whereas, um, you know, this is not true for a patrilineal line. So, you know, which we have now with the advent of the family, of the nuclear family. So um, this, this is just to show the status of women. This was, this was pretty common because this is before the time that I guess the um, details of, I guess, the biology are known. The only thing that made sense was to trace this descent down through women's lines. And so women were respected um, as the givers of life and as, um, you know, um, yeah, really important to, to the society. So what happened then is, um, the erosion of status of women occurred gradually in Africa as elsewhere um, due to the move towards um, ownership of private property. And this is not uh, particular to Africa alone, but just how the family developed. So what you had was um, initially you had the matrilineal line and the property was communal and uh, people lived in communities and the nuclear family as a unit that we know it today didn't really exist. And um, women tended to do to take care of, I guess, you know, the household and dealt with all the agriculture, and men tended to herd the sheep. And um, everything was on this level until surplus production began to, began to happen, where people were producing more than they needed, and cattle were a really big expression of, of the surplus, you know? I, I mean, I feel like I could be explaining it in more detail, but just um, bear with me. And anyway, so at this point in time, because men tended the cattle, then the it became necessary, I mean, then private property was, um, sort of came into being, and for men to have, men owned this property, and men would then want to pass this property down to their, um, to their offspring. And so the only way to ensure that, um, that that happened was to have the family and to have, you know, monogamy and to have women there so that there could be a certainty that the person who was going to inherit this private property would be of um, the man's line. Does that make sense? I hope I'm explaining that properly. Okay, great, super. Um, yeah, so 
Some rights. So I just said uh, the erosion of the status of women that occurred with the move towards the ownership of private property. And uh, of course, with private property and capitalism, as we know it now, feudalism before capitalism, came class oppression, sex oppression, um, race oppression, and so on. So um, much as this was happening, the patri patriarchal, patriarchal systems definitely did exist prior to, um, prior to colonialism. But with a mix of colonialism, women then further lo lost status because they weren't able to fit into society the way they did before. And I'll expand on this later. So I'm just going to go um, and I'm just going to mention some of the roles that women had before. So um, women had economic roles. Um, uh, so the major food producers, and they had um, a lot of the authority over how land was used and how land was to be cultivated. And um, another thing is trade as well. So women in West Africa, for instance, presided over trade and the exchange of goods and communities for their, sorry, the exchange of goods for their communities. Um, another thing as well was. Um, spiritual roles. Women dominated the positions of spiritual power. So they would announce dates in terms of ceremonies, rites, rituals. There were oracles, spirit mediums, seers, and advisors. And political roles as well. Because of this dual system that I described, where you had uh, the king and you had the queen mother, then women were very much an integral part of the political system of a lot of African societies um, in, in pre-modern times. Just to mention, women still, I mean, these roles that I speak about, other than maybe the spiritual and political roles, for instance, the economic roles, women still do tend to dominate local market scenes in Africa. They do tend to do a lot of the trading um, in the informal sector. They are women do tend to, to put more hours into, you know, I guess generating money than, than men do. But obviously, they don't really fit into a lot of the economic systems that came into place after colonialism. So, much as there was patriarchy prior, I think it is important to understand that some of the struggles that women in Africa face were particularly exacerbated by, um, by that, by that you know, shift in the systems that came into place um, after colonialism. After colonialism, um, and when after independence was won by many African organizations, then the role of feminists was taken on, well, maybe not so called feminists, but taken on by women's organizations that tried to especially have pol gain political milestones um, for women, the, the milestones that men had achieved. So I don't know if any of you is familiar with any of these organizations or, you know. Um, well, when you hear about sort of, you know, educate the girl child, I mean, this, these are a lot of campaigns that came out of, you know, predominantly Africa. Um, so a lot of these taglines, you know, so, um, so educating women was, was one really big push. But as I mentioned before, I'm definitely, um, you know, lucky on that, on that ground. So this is what, so women's movements would come together, come together, um, aid each other financially, sort of microfinance institutions. Um, they would also... Um, yeah, definitely push for the education of women, campaign against female genital cutting. And yeah, so there's a lot of these regional and transnational women's groups, right? So um, just, I just want to give some examples of women's national organizing that came from African examples. So for instance, women's world banking, which I don't know, which some of you might be familiar with, was based on the formalization of local women's rotating credit associations. So what, what happens is, so women get together who aren't earning too much money and um, they, they say, well, it's like a merry-go-round you know, merry is. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. So, so through merry-go-rounds, women were able to, to save money, for, you know, to, to basically just have a pool of money at any point in time to start businesses. And this has been a really big form of um, empowerment in, in a lot of African countries. So that was the one. And then promoting the rights of the girl child. 
Um, also ensuring that women's organizations kept focus on the broader context of women's rights um, in such oppressive situations as apartheid South Africa. So this was just about contextualizing women's rights as human rights, which hadn't happened prior. Um, um, so African women have also led the way for advocating gender balance, parliamentary bodies, and adopting gender budgets that analyze and clarify the gender implications of national spending. And this is, I mean, gender analyses are, you know, even if it's just for lip service or face value, are really done to death in African countries. And this is because of all the women's groups that um, campaigned for this um, at that post-colonial time. So women were instrumental as well in advocating for the UN Security Council resolution, which was passed in 2000, in the year 2000, to ensure women's inclusion in peace negotiations and their protection from sexual assault and civil conflicts. And, um, and of course, women have also been at the forefront of discussion between cultural rights and women's human rights. These issues are relevant globally and um, include female genital cutting, um, women's inheritance rights, polygamy, and child marriage, to name a few. Okay, so um, something else as well that I, I thought I would mention is uh, just to show how successful um, these women movements were is um, they really have generated political transformation. Um, African, a lot of African countries have really some of the highest representation in parliament of, of women, which um, some of you may be aware. So definitely some big, big gains to be made. And this is generally through the use of quotas, which I know people feel differently about. Um, and so women have moved into leadership positions in political parties, legislatures, NGOs, um, and actively challenged discriminatory laws and constitutions. Um, African women's groups have assumed leadership roles in critical health issues, campaigning, again, against female genital cutting and organizing programs to prevent the spread of HIV and AIDS. Uh, something that's changed in the landscape is uh, since, since that time when women were really going sort of political and and uh, you know, of course, campaigning for, for these for these rights, uh, the hegemony of you know, I mean, I guess the nuclear family and um, the place of women was not really being challenged. And this is what is quite new in the landscape of feminism in Africa in the last maybe I'd say 10 to 15 years. And of course, taking on the term feminism as well. So um, it was a kind of feminism, of course, what I've described to fight for these rights. But now it's more than just you know we want to be equal in this maybe. It's more really questioning these structures that are in place. Women's on the line. <laughs> oh, that was women on the line. Women on the line. <laughs> <laughs>to give an example of feminist organizing. This really stands out in Liberia. So Liberia has been the seat of many civil wars uh, for, for many reasons. It's just Liberia as a country, uh, the people know how Liberia was created as a country. Just, yeah, the liberated slaves were brought back and put in Liberia. So you've had people who had, I guess, very little in common, you know, coming back years after descendants of, um, of, of slaves in um, in, in America, and that was the country Liberia. So it has it's had a lot of turmoil um, over the course of the years. So during the Second Liberian Civil War, and this is if you don't, if you maybe are not thinking Liberia now, I'm sure you've a lot of the horrific you know images and, and wars that you've seen over the course of a generation would definitely have been in Liberia. So um, so a quarter of a million people died, um, and a third of the population had been displaced in these wars, right? But there was um, this feminist activist and organizer, Lema, who uh, 
who just, yeah, I suppose, had um, this idea. She said she had a dream, you know, to bring Christian and Muslim women together and just, you know, just come together and, and say, this is enough. The women of Liberia demand peace. And so they had, um, right, so anyway, they basically, she, she went around organizing, getting the women in churches and mosques to come together. And the women were waging this aggressive campaign to end the violence because it said, no more, not us, not our children. So um, what they, what they wore white t-shirts and white headscarves, and this was meant to be um, the symbol of peace. And they would go and demand um, in, yeah, I guess, Monrovia, in sit-ins at the, at the fish markets, and just say, you know, we really want peace. And that Charles Taylor, who was the, current, who was the president at the time, and you know, the cause of a lot of the trouble, um, just had to sort of get together with the rebels, and they had to come to a, sol a solution that was peaceful and long-lasting. So. Um, so they told all these banners saying, um, women in Liberia want peace now. And um, the bonds among them grew. They, beca they became bolder. But the, only the women were participating in this sort of you know, push to work for the government to, um, to, yeah, to just bring, bring about peace. And so um, the women decided that the only way to get the men on board was to have a sex strike, which was actually effective. So um, they did this, this again, you know, really creative. And, and a sex strike is what was successful in getting the men to uh, join the women on this, um, on this, on this uh, sort of political front. So eventually, the peace talks between uh, you know, uh, Charles Taylor and, and the rebels be began. And um, the women would stand outside and say they would not be leaving until the, you know, the talks came to a conclusion that was suitable for everybody. Um, and when they were really impatient with the lack of progress, what, what they did, which which okay, apparently this is a this is a common threat, you know. So what what they did is um, to to demonstrate their resolve, they resorted to one of African women's most powerful protest strategies, shaming the men by threatening to rip off their clothes. And this is actually, I mean, you know, it might sound bizarre to you, but it is. I mean, that that is really, if you see, say, for instance, your mom naked, it is a, as a, as a male member of the family, it curses for generations. And so, this was actually a powerful impetus to make the talks successful and to and for the men to take the women really seriously. So already, you know, you, you're starting to see women, yeah, question that the powers that be and realizing the powers that they have and you know, in, in numbers and in, in sticking together. And this is different, of course, this is completely different from the political organizing. And so we're starting to see more and more of this grassroots, um, you know, women together um, organizing to, towards, um, towards common goals. This wave of new and creative feminism has represented an important turning point for women's empowerment and a significant change from earlier decades, which had rarely challenged men's dominance in private or public life. So speaking about currently, yeah, women definitely continue to organize um, to highlight the issues and advocate for themselves at grassroots community and national levels. Uh, the focus remains to further women's education, livelihoods, health, reproductive rights, and political representation. Um, Kenya has been, I guess, an example in some ways uh, because we, uh, women were instrumental in pushing for a new and progressive constitution, one of the most progressive. We're just waiting for a few things to actually be implemented. Um, and this gives women more land ownership rights, um, legalizes abortion in certain instances, um, rights in the event of divorce, and harsh persecution for domestic violence, rape, and female genital cutting, which were not um, enshrined in the previous constitution. So there's been, there's been a lot of that going on.
Now we hear some answers to important questions from the audience. The first one asks about the relationship between homophobia in countries like Uganda and Kenya and how it relates to colonisation. So I guess there's two questions here. Um, and I feel, so the first question is, of course, just uh, how much influence do British colonial laws have on the fact that lots of countries have, um, you know, homosexuality, um, or any kind of sexual diversity as illegal in their constitutions. And it's, it's everything, you know, it's absolutely everything. And so I find that hilarious when some people, um, when I was home, um, President Obama, I guess, Obama, half Kenyan, was in Kenya and everyone was going crazy. And um, I, I didn't know that Kenya was actually that homophobic, but I'd hear people say, oh, people have to say it's un-African, you know? But what they don't realize is that actually, it, the reason it's in, the, it's in the Constitution at all, the reason that um, there's ever any um, resistance to, to this is because it came through in the British Constitution. So, um, you know, that, that, was, that was definitely, I guess homophobia was an import, but then some people have decided to own it and claim it and don't even realize that link. And of course, you know, those countries that brought it, I guess, to Africa have moved on and abolished it, you know? Um, yeah, unfortunately, it's a legacy that has remained within the country. So that, that, I know for Kenya, it's certainly true. For Uganda, for a lot of countries, it is true. So coming to, to, to now, so we've had this, it's illegal in the Kenyan constitution, but nothing ever happens. I mean, I guess people, people are limited in their, in, their, in their private lives and in the, how public they can be about their sexual orientation. But there's never really any persecution, especially in Kenya. The one country, so what people just go about, I mean, you might get, you know, commented to walking down the street, but no one's going to actively persecute you. Uganda, however, has had this uprising in the last, um, I guess, five years or so, where they actively will name and shame in the papers, you know, like prominent homosexuals and go and, you know, attack them. It really is, it's quite dangerous to be same-sex attracted in those countries. And this is linked really um, strongly to, um, to, of course, American evangelical influences. So there's a, there's a great uh, documentary about it called God Loves Uganda that really will give it, you know, will tell you all about it. But they basically tie the help that they need to, so they, 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 give, they give help on the condition that Ugandans will push for legislation to do what's seen as Christian and right. And one of the things that obviously is seen as Christian and right is um, to, yeah, to completely abolish homosexuality. So there is that really strong link. It doesn't come out of nowhere. So in terms of what can African feminist movements um, teach other feminist movements worldwide? Uh, I think that this is just what Debbie and I were speaking about. I think there's this idea that African feminism must be so so different, so um, you know, so exotic. But you know, I think one of the one of the lessons here is that it's pretty much the same. It's pretty much the same as feminist movements worldwide. You know, women are the causes of this. Um, you know, inequality and sex oppression are the same worldwide. And of course, you, you know, because of the, you know, a different setting, then the challenges tend to be a little more complex. And women are a lot worse off economically um, than women, I guess, elsewhere in the world. But not, not always. I mean, I think the African situation could be compared to a lot of other situations, like um, you know, Alison mentioned. And again, when you said the African situation, what are we talking about? Because I feel I have a lot of self-determination. but. You know, am I everybody now? So, so I, I do think that it is one universal struggle with the same with the same causes, and um, yeah, we, we've got a lot to learn from each other in terms of picking exact key things. I, yeah, I guess it's, just, it's the same thing. So maybe solidarity more than ever. Maybe realizing, I think, I, I think it's important again to realize that we work together as partners. I think the era of development where people came in to help Africa and West was best. It's changing a little bit, you know, it's about working as partners. So I think that's a really important lesson. Like, you know, no one needs saving, we just need to sort of work um, 
hand in hand to achieve common goals. And what else did I say? Yeah, definitely working hand in hand um, towards the same goals. Yeah, and, and just be partners in it because again, you know, I think it's about getting these numbers together and working to go somewhere. So that's that's how I respond to the first um, the first question. Then the second question of where where do I see the movement and where do I want to see the movement going? Um, again, I guess towards something more. You know, dare I say matriarchal, you know, I guess um, egalitarian. As, as a socialist feminist, I, I really do think that um, the solution to it all would be just a revolution in which the capitalist system is overthrown. And this um, is, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I'm not crazy. Anyway, and, um, and so I, I, do, I do feel that this would, would, you know, bring an end to a lot, a lot of, this is just the ideal solution. And actually looking at, um, you know, the economic inequality, there's just so much going on that, and I think worldwide as well, that that would be ideal, you know, sort of toward, move towards a more um, socialist sort of, you know, Marxist utopia. Um, what else I would, what would I say about that? Well, I think it's just about making gains, you know, normalizing, you know, I guess it's changing the patriarchy, changing these, changing really, you know, like tightly held conceptions, misconceptions, and, and you know, a, a lot of, and yeah, I guess a lot of people's minds, the patriarchy is so strongly entrenched. And so I suppose in, in my lifetime, I'd also like to see that lessen a little bit. That's definitely lessening. But um, it's not like, I don't know, I think in Australia, a lot of men would be on board with, you know, parts of the women. But you have men who are diametrically opposed to women being independent, women being able to decide their own fate, because it is, you know, I guess a, a shift of a power balance and people aren't happy with that. So um, if we can change, if those mindsets can change, I suppose in my lifetime, that would be, that would be great because that of course would lead to so many more great leaps. Where do I think it will be? Yeah, I think it will be there and more. Just to, to even when I was doing this research, um, for this, it's amazing how much African women have, have managed to do. And again, this is a credit to women worldwide. I think we're managing to, to um, achieve in one generation what took four generations to achieve elsewhere, you know? Because you know, the world, I guess, works together, we make these strides together. And so, so I do think it will be so much further because of the you know, progress of women, women worldwide, so much further than I could, than I, I could dream. That was a member of Radical Women Australia and international student Nita Okoko ending on her ideas about where African feminism will be in the future. If you want more information about Radical Women Australia, you can hit up their Facebook page. Women on the Line is Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. We greatly appreciate the financial support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email at womenontheline at hotmail.com. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash womenontheline. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by Litig, and today's feature song was Soul is Heavy by Necker. Thank you for listening to Women on the Line. I'm Originald, and I hope you can tune in again next time.